On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Hey, this is DeRay. I welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, and DR. Kaya is off for this episode, and we talk about all the news that you didn't know from the past week. And Netta, Janetta Elsie, gives us updates on what's happening across the country with the protests. And then I sit down with glaucoma specialist, Dr. Daniel LaRouche, to learn why vision issues impact the Black community more than the general population. I learned so much about glaucoma. You probably don't know a lot about glaucoma. Neither did I. Learn, y'all. Change your behavior, y'all. We got to do it. My advice for this week is about the interview. Like, one of the pieces of advice that I had to tell myself was ask the question. Just ask it. I saw something about racial disparities with glaucoma. I don't think about glaucoma. And it was like, bring somebody on to ask the question. Read about it. Ask the question. Like, ask the question. That's the only way you'll know. Let's go. Family, family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. And I'm Samson Yangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Dre at DIY on Twitter. So, you know, what do we have going on this week? Well, definitely had the impeachment, second impeachment trial of the Donald Trump ending in another acquittal. It was day after day of very organized making of a case on, on, on the part of the Democrats. A lot of footage we hadn't seen, really disturbing. Also, just a lot of news coming out this week, just, you know, continued discussion of what the aftermath of January 6th has been. I know there, there were um, actually a couple of Capitol Police officers that committed suicide, which was obviously sad to hear. And, and who knows what other subsequent things we'll, we'll see or hear about after this January 6th insurrection. I think what I'm taking away from all of it is just the continued divide in the country. And I don't even know if it's necessarily a political divide at this point. I mean, I think it's either you are living and breathing and being privileged by white supremacy and continuing to ensure that it grows and is fed, or you're not. Um, And so I see so much of what is happening here is just kind of, you know, repeat of the past in so many ways. I don't know how hopeful I am necessarily around this kind of like unity talk that we continue to hear and we've heard since Inauguration Day. I just don't know how unification can happen when people are so, you know, even Mitch McConnell ending it with, we know it happened, we know he's responsible, but we're not going to impeach him. We're just not going to do it. So I think when people, you know, even know the facts, know the implications and still decide to do what the immoral choice is, I'm just interested to see how it's going to play out during the rest of Biden's administration. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a divide, Diara, and I think you know, we hear the, the term divide so often, and it is a stark divide between people who believe in democracy and people who do not. It's not just sort of like a difference of opinion. It is like either we have a democracy in which everybody's voice is heard, in which the way the people vote and the way the people believe has some sort of influence on what the policies are of the government, or we live in a place where a handful of super wealthy and well-connected white men predominantly 
can control every single outcome or strike down every single law or uh, get elected uh, even though they didn't win the majority of votes. There are two different models that are in contention. And what is wild about it is seeing how our existing political system sort of empowers that anti-democratic model to have the power to block anything that we want to pass democratically. And now we're in this position, I mean, you see this in the impeachment trial where we got 57 votes, which is, you know, there's, it's historic in that it is more than any other margin in terms of the bipartisan conviction vote. But at the same time, you see the Republican senators and they genuinely, despite believing that this was an insurrection, that this was a high crime and misdemeanor, they were like, no, we were not willing to hold this man accountable. We're just not willing to do it. And some of them, I think, genuinely believed in the insurrection. They sided with it. They helped organize with it. They promoted the big lie. And then for some of them, it was, you could tell that they were scared, right? Like they were genuinely, like there was cowardice and you could see it on their faces, right? Like they were scared to go home to their states, predominantly in the South, and confront the same lynch mob that just stormed the Capitol because most of them didn't get arrested. I mean, they're, they're back home. Right. And so you could see how this sort of block now in the Senate blocked the ability of our elected officials to hold Trump accountable. And they shouldn't have had that power. And our system gave them the power to do that. Even though there was a majority vote to convict, it still wasn't enough. And so we have to change the system. We have to get more people involved in the process. We have to make sure that D.C. is a state. We have to make sure that we are passing the Voting Rights Act. You know, we need to be dramatically shifting the balance of power because we cannot keep negotiating with people who don't believe in, in our ability to just exist and be in a society where our voices can be heard. Now, I was one of the people who was pretty frustrated at them finally getting to the point where we might be able to call witnesses and then, you know, there were no witnesses. And then I looked up and the Washington Post reported the hostage situation that the Republicans put them under. So if you remember... Most often, the confirmation of the cabinet moves rather quickly in the beginning because we need a, everybody sort of agrees we need a functional government. In this administration, the, the Republicans have been really focused on making sure that the confirmations go slowly. We realize now that that was a key part of the leverage around processes like these. What the New York Times reported, excuse me, not the Washington Post, is that the Republicans who were pissed about the trial, they warned that any effort to do this trial, they would block every nomination, they would block all pandemic relief and anything else he wanted to do until it was over. Senator Joni Ernst, the Republican from Iowa, is quoted as saying, if they want to drag this out, we'll drag it out. They won't get their noms, they won't get anything. And that is what forced the Democrats to just let it go. And the New York Times reports that the impeachment managers and the Trump defense team had up to two hours each to present their closing arguments. And like that sort of wrapped it all up. But the witnesses sort of went out because the Republicans were like, if you want to play, then we will just block every single thing from happening. And there is a, there's just like a really dangerous gangster vibe that you get from the Republicans that they're like, we will literally watch the government crumble. We will let people die. We don't care about the vaccine. We don't care about whether people can eat or not. All we want is power. And there's there's a part of that that's like, you can't negotiate with that. You can't like indulge it. You got to beat that. That's all you can do. You got to beat it. You can't play with that. And I, and I hope 
that, you know, if they cave on this, that they come back firing once we get the cabinet in, because you just can't play with this, that Trump is going to carry this as like a win, that he wasn't impeached again, that blah, blah, blah. And like, he's not playing, that those people are like not playing a game and we can't play with that kind of energy. The other thing is that there was a report in Morning Consult that blew my mind and it showed, it was a chart that showed what the Democrats saw as news and what the Republicans saw as news. And it was fascinating because it it helped me understand much better that like a lot of this is people just choosing ignorance and being racist and knowing full well what they're doing. And some of it, not letting anybody off the hook, some of it literally is that the Republicans are just not seeing the news, that this is like news suppression. So things like Trump won't commit to leaving. If you remember when Trump wouldn't commit to leave, only like 15% of Republicans heard that, like heard a lot about that. Whereas 50% of Democrats heard that. So my news is actually good news. And in particular, it's about a new study that just came out. uh, And it's called Black Lives Matter's Effect on Police Use of Lethal Force by Travis Campbell at the University of Massachusetts. Now, before I get into this study, let's talk about the context. Since we begin tracking data, you know, you'll recall that prior to 2014 or so, we had no comprehensive data at national level on people killed by the police. Government still doesn't track it to this day comprehensively. But we built mapping police violence in 2014, uh, and in 2015, the Washington Post built a database, you know, The Guardian built a database. Now we have some comprehensive data on killings by police going back about to 2013, to the present day. And we've learned a lot more about fatal police violence in the context of the analyses that have been done using these data sets over the past few years. In particular, one of the things that the data demonstrates is that when you go back to about 2013 and you look at the trajectory of the landscape of police violence uh, over that time period to the present day, you see a pretty substantial decline in people being killed by the police, particularly in big cities. Now, over that time period, there's been about a 30% reduction in killings by police in big cities, about the 30 largest cities in the country uh, during that time period. And also during that time, we see an increase in killings by police in suburban and rural areas that offsets that reduction in the city. So the national trend line looks like the same number of people are being killed by police every single year, about 1,100 people. Now, there's been a lot of research over the past couple of years that has sought to explain why those dynamics appear to be happening. Why were we seeing such a reduction in the cities? Why are things moving in the right direction in big cities, the wrong direction seemingly everywhere else? Now, a couple of research studies have sought to answer this question. So there was a study that came out last year that identified body cameras as one potential factor, that the departments that implemented body cameras were the ones that had larger reductions in killings by police during that time period. Similarly, in the research that we've done uh, in focusing on the mapping police violence data set, one of the things that is apparent in the data as well is that the departments that have seen the largest reductions in killings by police have also been the departments that have implemented things like new use of force policies that are more restrictive on the police. There are also departments that have, many of which have received Department of Justice interventions that have forced them to implement new accountability structures and policies. They've also been departments that have seen pretty substantial reductions in arrests, particularly arrests for low-level offenses, which suggests a strategy uh, that is decriminalizing things like marijuana uh, and deprioritizing these types of low-level arrests for 
things that are often functions of poverty uh, and mental health issues uh, and certainly not a public safety threat. So we know all of these different things are happening and tend to be concentrated in the places where we've seen the best results. And now this study comes out. And in Travis Campbell's study, uh, focusing on the effect of Black Lives Matter protests, what he's able to demonstrate is that it's in fact the places that have had more protests against police violence that have been the ones that have seen the largest reductions in killings by police. In fact, when you look at the trajectory in this paper, you can see that it's places that have had Black Lives Matter protests. Again, they, they track this uh, by relying on a database that is posted on Elaframe that's managed by activists, uh, tracking thousands and thousands of protests since 2014. And they're able to show that you know, the places that have had protests, particularly places where the protests have been larger and in longer duration, have seen reductions, about 15 to 20% fewer killings by police in their difference in difference analysis. Uh, compared to other places, which they estimate to be about 300 lives, 300 fewer killings by the police over the five-year period following those, the initial protests. So that's huge, right? Because what this piece of the puzzle does is it helps us understand the relationship between protests, which then informed the implementation of particular policies, uh, things like more restrictive policies around use of force, reducing arrests for low-level offenses, uh, the implementation of different accountability processes that now seem to be producing results in terms of actually saving lives. So powerful, powerful research. This is, of course, preliminary. There's a whole bunch that we continue to be learning seemingly every single month as new research comes out. Um, but this is powerful. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you all have to think about it. Sam, you know, you know why I like this? Because oftentimes when there are tactics like protests or tactics like anything around, you know, narrative change when it comes to like humanizing black people, funders, nonprofits, like they all have, you know, they use these metrics or like, you know, we have to be metrics driven and we have to have these particular outcomes to get funding, to get this, to get that. So I think this is helpful and insightful for organizations to continue to be resourced because you know, if you can get data on, you know, obviously like the results of organizing and now get data on the results of protesting, it just helps to continue. Like, that's, I guess that's how I thought about it. I just thought this data could also be used to help continue to resource movement and also to highlight the other areas where there are gaps, right? Where there are those data gaps, because once you <laughs> just feel like you learn things and then you, you're also learning what you still don't know. Um, and so I thought that was also insightful, too. And hopefully this is what the study can be used to continue to, to further the movement in terms of funding and resources. So that was my take. It reminded me, too, that so much of the stuff that comes up about the protest is from the police, right? So it's like... The protest caused spike in retirements. The protest caused spike in murders. The protest caught, like, they just put out all this stuff that's like the protest ruined the world. And you're like, oh, I don't really think that's true. But there, in the past, there doesn't seem to have been a lot of research about, like, what were the positive impacts of, of the protest, knowing that the things that the police call the negative impacts are normally things that they just made up. And that actually really, that was really powerful to me. I was like, wow, this is like... It's good to see this. It also makes sense, right? That like, I think about even with the use of force stuff that we did this summer around Ike Wade and da-da, there were just so many people in communities who didn't know. They didn't know that the policy in their city was bad. They didn't know that the, you know, we're doing a no-knock campaign now. They didn't know that the no-knock rules in their community were not helpful. And 
they said no. And the protest is what brought awareness about the issue. So it makes sense to me that like more people being aware might lead to changes. Like that is like a, that is a good thing. And like the pressure of that also probably matters a lot. So, so this was both an affirmation that it matters and, and you know this, Sam, obviously, because it was your research that helped us understand the suburban and rural communities. It's always interesting, too, to think about how these results track in those communities, because as we know, so much of the activism has been in cities, especially in 2014. And what this last wave did is, is that it seems like the protests spread so much more than just the major cities. And it'll be interesting to see the impact of that over time. So, yeah, my news this week is from The Advocate, from a paper, I think, not sure if it's New Orleans or Baton Rouge, but I will. Know, I do know that you all will let me know because that's what you did with my statistic last week on Mississippi. So thank you to those in our audience that reached out. Um, <laughs> I, I said that I don't even remember what I said, but the correct statistic is Mississippi has the highest percentage of Black people per state, um, which is thirty eight percent. So go ahead and Google Black people in Mississippi again because I'm listen. I'm happy y'all did. Okay, so continue to do that to see what's going on in Mississippi. Um, This story also, I've just been on a Deep South kick recently. I've had some great conversations in the last couple weeks, too, with folks who are trying to organize around um, getting our folks to uh, the vaccine drive through. So I'm just going to continue to try to amplify what I can to keep y'all Googling around the South. Um, But anyhow, this, this particular story talks about how Hope Enterprise Corporation, which is also partly a credit union that helps folks, um, you know, small black businesses get loans and resources, et cetera. They partnered with Goldman Sachs. Now, it looks like the only partnering on the Goldman Sachs side is given $130 million, but we'll take it. Hopefully next time it's a billion. But what they're doing is they're creating this collaborative where they're tapping into black HBCUs. And this article talks particularly about those, those HBCUs in Louisiana that we love, Xavier, Dillard, Southern. Um, and so those HBUs are really used for a hub for, for resources to teach black businesses about you know, procurement, government contracts, you know, other things around you know, scaling your business, growing your business, moving to e-commerce, et cetera, just really helping black businesses in particular pivot during COVID and, and what, that, you know, what that's meant um, to so many black businesses. The article also talks about you know, just that, what's happening to black businesses right now um, as a result of COVID. And we're seeing um, 22% of businesses nationwide have closed, um, but it's far worse for minority-owned businesses, 41% of Black-owned businesses, and 32% of Latinx-owned businesses have closed. And that's compared to 17% of white-owned companies. So we're seeing that, obviously, business owners of color are suffering more um, due to COVID, which I'm sure we all probably assumed. So I just got excited when I saw this and wanted to share it, because one, I thought this collaborative, which is called the Deep South Economic Mobility Collaborative. It's going to operate in Baton Rouge, New Orleans, Birmingham, Montgomery, Little Rock, Jackson, and Memphis. For Black communities, Black businesses are so, 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 so deeply important, and particularly deeply important during a pandemic, um, I would presume. And so knowing how hard Black-owned businesses and therefore Black-owned communities have been hit by COVID, I just see this as, one, good policy, good planning, good collaboration, um, good injection of resources. But I see it happening places that really, really, really need it and places that have um, a high concentration of Black folk. So hoping to see more collaborative actions like this with HBCUs, 
But I just saw this and it was, you know, hopeful news. And so I thought I'd talk about it. You know, Diara, this was wild reading some of the statistics in this article around, you know, how black owned businesses have fared during the pandemic. You know, I, I wasn't aware that 41% of black owned businesses closed in the immediate onslaught of the pandemic, 41%. And 32% of Latino-owned businesses closed as well, compared to 17% of white-owned companies. And so, you know, I mean, that's almost half of Black-owned businesses closing, right, in the immediate onslaught. That's wild to me. And then just thinking back, you know, just to last year with those initial rounds of COVID relief and the PPP program and how, you know, 95%, uh, according to estimates, um, 95% of black owned businesses uh, weren't able to qualify for PPP loans given the structure of that program, right? And so folks getting left out of government assistance, seeing this massive, massive, massive decline in black owned businesses, which are now being closed across the country, I'm sort of, you know, reflecting on the on the conversation that we're hearing around COVID relief in the current moment, uh, where so much of the conversation is focused on whether it's we're at two thousand dollar checks or fourteen hundred dollar checks, or whether there's going to be any checks at all, uh, or you know whether we're going to have a fifteen dollar minimum wage or not, whether we're going to get student loan debt relief of ten thousand dollars or not, and those are all like critical fights that we need to be talking about, and obviously we need all of those things. But the specific targeted relief for black people that specifically deals with the ways in which black businesses and black families have been left out of the recovery from the previous packages of the recovery and have been left out for so much longer before that. That piece of the conversation, I feel like, gets lost in sort of the national news and you know what you hear on the radio. Um, so, so I hope that for the Biden administration, um, for you know the Democratic Party now, as they think about you know what comes next, um, now that you know this impeachment um, situation appears to be at least for the moment. Um, adjourned. You know, I, I hope that they start to focus on this, that this is an explicit part of that relief package, that that is funded at the level that it needs to be, and that we can specifically um, address these issues that are targeting disproportionately Black families and businesses. You know, Sam, I too was, uh, I remember the stats from the beginning of the PPP loan conversation, but didn't realize how stark they were and didn't realize that the 41% drop in Black businesses was compared to a 17% drop that white businesses experienced. So, like, it was vastly disproportionate. I didn't realize that about the bank loans, you know, you, you think about how many uh, of all businesses need loans to start, especially small businesses. Only 1% of Black business owners see their request for a loan approved in their first year of business. 1%, which is wild. And then when we think about PPP loans or SBA loans, there was a study conducted by the NCRC that showed the systemic discrimination that Black people faced with PPP loans. And what they did is that they paired up Black and white mystery shoppers to apply for the loan from a set of banks. And the study revealed that Black, and I quote, this is from Forbes, the study revealed that Black participants were treated worse than their white counterparts and offered different information, but the banks did not cross a line that would put them in violation of fair lending laws. And you're like, here we go with the legally encoded and validated racism. So I'm, I'm excited about this fund. It's not enough money. There needs to be triple, quadruple this amount of money at the very least to make an impact. But you see it and you're like, wow. And the Forbes article did a good job of saying like, yes, we know the racism's there, 
no, it's not illegal. And, and the question becomes, like, how, is there a chance in the administration to actually fix that now? So my news is about Harry Tubman. I feel like there's been like a resurgence of Harry Tubman news in the past couple of years, if not mostly because of oh a couple of things. One is uh, the National Museum for African American History has like her Bible, so in a sash of hers. And then, as you know, Obama wanted to put her on the twenty dollar. It was a twenty dollar bill, right? On the twenty dollar bill. Yep. So the latest news is that. Harry Tubman was recently inducted into the Military Intelligence Corps Hall of Fame, that she is being recognized for being one of the most successful spies in American history, and they are trying to uncover this part of her legacy that has been lost. So uh, there is a quote from Christopher Costa, the ED of the International Spy Museum in D.C., And what he says is what most Americans don't know is down in South Carolina, she was part of a small scouting unit that collected intelligence behind enemy lines on the Confederacy. She was not only involved with spying and scouting, she almost operated like a special operations specialist. It is an extraordinary story. And like, that's true. Most people know her for the Underground Railroad, the process of helping to free uh, people across this coast Uh, But a lot of people don't think about, like, what she did in that time period. So the article starts with talking about the June 1st, 1863, where she led troops from the Sea Islands up the black waters of South Carolina's Combahee River with a plan to destroy bridges, raid Confederate outposts and rice plantations, cutting off supplies to Confederate troops. And this is both just a reminder that, like, without Black people, there is no this. So, like, we were key to all this even being a country in the first place. The second is that uh, it's taken a couple, you know, 100 years plus to recognize Harry Tubman. <laughs> and I don't know if she necessarily want to be recognized by the same government that, you know, has <laughs> tried its best to destroy black people. But uh, it is important that we uncover this part of her. I will just say, I feel like I know a lot about her. I didn't know. I did know that her real name was Arminta Ross. I knew that. I didn't know that her nickname was Minty. Um, So I learned that in this article. And, you know, we are always proud of her because uh, Marilyn claims her because she spent a part of her life in Maryland. There are a lot of stops on the Underground Railroad uh, that are in uh, in Maryland. So I feel like I grew up uh, learning a lot about Harry Tubman. But I just thought I'd bring it here. It was really interesting. Uh, I didn't know the extent to which she was a spy and how important that was. So, DeRay, I was very much familiar with this part of Harriet's brilliance. And I think that's why I, you know, I think there needs to be another movie done on Harriet Tubman. I actually was a lucky person to read a script of Harriet, the movie that ended up coming out. So brilliant performances, incredible human beings. But I think, you know, the Hollywood version of Harriet Tubman's story, obviously, like many things, like had to have a love you know, relationship in the movie. Like Harriet had to, you know, be in love with somebody, blah, blah, blah. So I feel like in the Hollywoodized version of Harriet Tubman's life, what is left out is the fact that she is a Civil War hero and a hero in so many ways to Black folks in particular, but also just as an American. And so I just felt there should be the type of historical telling um, and storytelling of her that exists for like Abraham Lincoln. Like as many stories as we hear, as many movies as there are, as many documentaries are, as there are, we should have the same for Harriet Tubman. Um, because I think, Jerry, to your point, it would bring to life all of these many things that she did. Um, and not, you know, obviously to free black folks, but also just to really shape what this country ought to be. 
I love that you brought this to the pod. I've been basically as as much as I can in my in in my small ways trying to figure out how to tell more stories about her and more complete stories. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. And now I check in with Janetta Elzy as she gives updates on what's happening with the nationwide protests. Hey everybody, it's me, Netta. So happy to be back again with you all this week. Work is work. Sage is at the tail end of her heat finally, y'all. And I get my playful, happy puppy. She's definitely returning back to her old self. And I'm so, so happy. 
Um, I also bought her this really great calming shirt for her anxiety. Whole different dog. I wish I would have thought about this earlier to even Google, hey, is there something else I can put on her? Like a like a weighted blanket is how I feel this calming shirt works for her. Um, so I just greatly appreciate it. If your dog is suffering with anxiety, Google that. So, and I'm not sure if anyone else's family likes to call and discuss the weather, but my grandparents love to watch the weather or go somewhere outside and call me immediately, tell me what the weather is like, ask me what the weather is in D.C. No, they're not coming to visit. They just love discussing the weather. So with that, because of the snowstorm in St. Louis right now, I'm keeping everyone back home in my thoughts. And so now on to the news. First up, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office and the Phoenix Police Department are being called out repeatedly, facing allegations of discriminatory arrests and political prosecutions during the uprisings last summer. Body camera footage from protests last summer have exposed multiple Phoenix Police Department officers talking about how they wish they could have gassed and stomped on a group of protesters, and then they kept complaining about having to wear body cams on the job. It took nearly four months for the local ABC station to obtain the body camera footage following an October protest, but better late than never, because this could make a stronger case for the group of protesters who are fighting multiple charges filed against them from that very same protest after they were arrested. A truly heartbreaking story coming out of Rochester, New York. A nine-year-old black girl in the midst of a domestic and mental health crisis was handcuffed by Rochester police and pepper sprayed in her face. Instead of treating her with patience and respect, they maced her. And it was just beyond heartbreaking to hear the girl say, officer, please don't do this to me. Only for the officer to respond, you did this to yourself, hun. And according to the president of the Rochester Police Union, the police officers did not lack compassion. So, of course, this is making me think of Tamir Rice and Ayanna Stanley Jones and countless other black children who have been killed or demonized or dehumanized by police only for the police to gaslight them, even in their deaths or even in the midst of their trauma and blaming them for their own inhumane treatment. That one really, really touched me. Hearing that little baby scream and, and, and plead out for her own humanity. Woo! Like, I don't know how we listen to that. And, you know, I... <sighs> on to the next story. Do you remember when police in Charleston took the white supremacist mass shooter by the name of Dylan Roof to Burger King after he murdered nine black churchgoers? Well, apparently, the 18-year-old accused of fatally shooting two people during a police brutality protest last summer is casually out and about. Having beers at a bar in a pandemic instead of, you know, following the conditions of his bail? That's right, Kyle Rittenhouse is out and about. To be more specific, this is a teenager who rode from Illinois to Wisconsin to shoot people protesting the shooting death of Jacob Blake. Blake, a black father who had three of his children in the car with him, had already been tasered when he was shot in the back multiple times by Kenosha police officers. A judge refused to issue a new arrest warrant and also refused to increase Kyle's bail, even though he violated his bail conditions by not telling the judge that he had physically moved to a new permanent address. 
Reminder that Rittenhouse faces multiple charges, including two homicide counts. We don't even have to go into what would happen if Kyle was anything but a young white man in 45's America last summer. So this was short and sweet this week. But to be honest, my heart just cannot move away from that little black girl having to defend her own childhood against those officers. There's a point in the video where the officer tells her, you're acting like a child. And then the little girl replies, I am a child. And it just pains me to know that this baby even knew to assert herself in that way. She knew. I'm praying to help create a world that this does not happen in anymore. In a world where black children get to be happy and whole and well-resourced. So that's just heavy on my heart this week. And I, I, I hope we all take this experience with us into this next week. How can we make a world where this no longer happens? Talk to you all next time. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Dr. Daniel LaRouche is a glaucoma specialist from New York who sat down with me to discuss why glaucoma impacts the black community more than any other group. Both slavery and white nationalism play into this, and Dr. LaRouche has practical advice for how to combat vision issues. Let's go. Dr. LaRouche, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I was excited to have you because I've always been interested about teeth and eyes, two parts of the health conversation that I feel like, you know, we don't talk about enough. And because you specialize on glaucoma, I was like, you know what? I just have a lot of questions. So, uh, you know, I'm excited, excited for you to be here. Can you start by telling us how did you get to eyes? Like, how did you and how did you get to glaucoma as the thing that you like specialize in? I'm fascinated with that. Uh, when I was in medical school. I was doing a variety of rotations during my third year clinicals, internal medicine, uh, surgery, psychiatry, and I liked the surgical aspect of it. I thought about general surgery training, but some of that training was a bit brutal, a bit militaristic during that training period. And I stumbled upon ophthalmology, which is surgery of the eyes, when I did a rotation. And 
frankly, before that, I wasn't even aware of the specialty as much. I was very fascinated that during a specialty, when I was seeing patients, you can look inside the eye and see various disease processes like hypertension, diabetes, glaucoma. You can see how the disease affects the person by looking inside their eye. At the same time, um, you can go to the operating room and operate to restore vision, uh, to take out a cataract to restore vision, to create a new drain to treat glaucoma and do lasers for diabetic retinopathy. And so I found that combination of treating patients in the office medically and being able to go to the operating room and doing surgery uh, was fascinating. I fell in love with the profession and I never looked back. Now, why did I go into glaucoma? When I went into my ophthalmology residency at Howard University in Washington, D.C., I saw that a leading cause of blindness at Howard University, particularly in the black community, was glaucoma. And I saw so many people uh, going blind from glaucoma and being afflicted with this within our communities that I wanted to make a difference and I wanted to specialize in this and see if I could you know, do something to help address this, help prevent blindness and try to really make a difference in this particular specialty because it affects our community so much. Uh, glaucoma affects the African-American community in terms of rates of blindness, about 7 to 15 times higher depending on where you are on the planet. That led to my interest in specializing in glaucoma. Let's sort of zoom out for a second. Can you explain to people what is glaucoma and how glaucoma is not the same thing as cataracts, right? I think they're two different things, but since you're here, I might as well just ask. Yes. Um, a cataract is when the lens in the eye becomes opacified and blocks your vision. That usually occurs as part of aging and usually starts around age 50. Like when your hair becomes gray, the lens in the eye becomes yellow. So it's a natural part of the aging process that occurs. And so when it becomes very cloudy, we can do surgery to remove the lens, place an intraocular lens in your eye to restore vision. So that's a reversible cause of blindness. Uh, cataract surgery is one of the most successful surgeries that we do in the United States. Uh, we do it in a hospital on an outpatient basis where you go into the hospital for a couple of hours. The procedure takes about 15 minutes and you go home. Now, glaucoma... That's a leading cause of irreversible blindness, where that can lead to permanent damage inside the eye. Now, when you touch your eyeball, you have a normal eye pressure, usually around 15. That's the mean normal intraocular pressure. But with glaucoma, the eye pressure goes up to about 18, 19, 20. And when that pressure goes up, damage starts to occur to the nerve that connects the eye to the brain. Okay, and that's called the optic nerve. And when that nerve gets damaged, you can have permanent loss of vision. Unfortunately, you don't feel that, so you have to get checked, get your eyes checked for glaucoma because you don't feel that slow elevation of pressure in the eye. And nowadays, we recommend everyone gets checked, particularly when you're over the age of 40 to 50 years of age, to get your eye pressure checked, get your lens checked, get your vision checked, um, so we can check to see if there's any damage to the optic nerve, check the retina to make sure the retina is okay as well. Um, what causes glaucoma? Well, the lens I was telling you about, and some people, the lens gets too large for the eye. The lens grows with age by about 20 to 30%. And the people with glaucoma, the lens grows a little bit more, like towards the 30% side. And that starts to narrow the drainage angle, rub up against the iris and cause pigment liberation that blocks the drain and cause elevation of eye pressure. In the past, I used to treat that with eye drops to lower the pressure or early laser treatment to lower the pressure. But we've noticed over the years, and studies have come out, that despite drops in laser, people still tend to get worse with glaucoma. 
And so to really treat and stop the vision loss that occurs, uh, we have to take this large lens out by doing early cataract surgery and a small microsurgical procedure called trabecular bypass to restore the outflow to the drain. By doing that earlier, we can bend the course of blindness in patients and actually improve vision because once we take the cloudy lens out, we put a nice new clear implant in and sometimes a multifocal implant so people can read without glasses and see without glasses. And that's making a huge difference to really bending the curve of blindness and glaucoma. Why are the racial disparities present with regard to glaucoma? Is it that because you said you can't feel it, so like if you don't go to the doctor, you won't even know this is really happening to you until it's too late. Is it because black people get their eyes checked up like later or less frequently? Or is it like where black people live? Is it diet? I don't know. Like what's that? Why do we know why the racial disparities are present? You know, that was a question that really also stimulated me to go into glaucoma. Like, why is our community having such high rates of blindness from this? And having, you know, practiced this over the last 25 years in New York City, having traveled to the Caribbean, having traveled to many countries in Africa, and examining patients and trying to better understand this, the main reason that I find that blacks have higher rates of blindness from glaucoma are for, like, two major reasons. One in all these places I've spoken to you about, the United States, the Caribbean, Africa, you know, blacks have been victimized by slavery, and Jim Crow, colonialism, and their segregation. You know, for decades and decades, you know, Caucasians have been able to go to medical school, okay, and blacks were not allowed to go to medical school. Only recently have blacks have been able to go into medical school. So, for example, in the United States, there are 40 million blacks in the United States, but there's only 400 black eye specialists like myself. There are about 26,000 other eye specialists, and they practice mostly in white areas. In all the black communities you go to across the United States, there's very few black eye doctors in the communities to provide access to care and education to the community about glaucoma. And this doesn't just apply to my specialty, but this applies to all other medical specialties. And that's why you see higher death rates of two to four times from COVID-19, in large part due to a lack of access to health care and due to the high prevalence of comorbidities due to the lack of access to health care providers. So we have to train a lot more black doctors to take care of the patients in the communities. And that's just not in the United States, but also in the Caribbean, where, like in Haiti, for example, with a population of 9 million, there's only 50 ophthalmologists and only about 15 of them actually operate. Really? Yeah. In Africa and Ghana, the ratio of ophthalmologists to the population is about almost 1 to a million. So there's a huge shortage of eye doctors. I mean, uh, this whole concept of white supremacy and colonization and all that stuff has really set us back by a long time. It's quite ironic because... The first physician was an African named Imhotep from about 3000 BC. And cataract surgery was initially developed in the Nile Valley by Africans with a technique called couching that's still performed today in remote areas in Africa where they take a copper needle and insert it inside the eye and dislodge the lens into the vitreous cavity to restore vision. This technique is an old technique that has a lot more complications than the newer techniques that we have today. But still, that was something that they had back then, back in like 2500 B.C. So we have to train a lot more black doctors. We have to educate the community a lot more as well. That's the main reason. And then also the other reason is that we don't do early enough surgery. 
Um, the standard of care is using eye drops and laser, and we know over time these eye drops are very expensive. They can be anywhere from 30 to $50 per bottle for one eye drop, and some patients may need three or four eye drops. And because of the economic differences in the community, the average net worth of a white family is about $171,000. Average net worth of a black family is about $17,000. Now, when people are trying to pay for food, housing, and then all of a sudden you need expensive eye drops, a lot of people in our community can't afford some of these eye drops. And then they have a hard time putting it in their eyes. And we know compliance is poor when you're taking two or three eye drops. And we're not doing surgery early enough. We need to do earlier cataract surgery, earlier trabecular bypass surgery to help preserve vision. And so that's one of the things that I try to do when I teach my residents and student doctors to try to become an excellent surgeon to get excellent surgical outcomes. Because with the newer, safer cataract surgery techniques that we have and uh, trabecular bypass techniques, the complications are far fewer than they were 25, 30 years ago. We can actually improve vision, lower the pressure, and when we do the surgery early enough, we can get 80% of people off of eye drops and really bend the curve of blindness. Have you seen anything about eye health with COVID? Like, are, you know, I have to imagine people are probably visiting the eye doctors even less now. Is there, I don't know, is there any COVID impact on eye health? Yeah, there's a tremendous amount of impact on eye health. When we had to shut down in New York, eye doctors had to shut down too. We could just do virtual visits because uh, we work in very close proximity with patients. And so there's a higher risk of transmission. So many patients were delaying their care to the eye doctor. And because of that delayed care, uh, sometimes some people progressed with their glaucoma if they couldn't get access to medications or if their glaucoma got out of hand. The good thing is that now that we're back open, we have all kinds of COVID-19 protocols with plexiglass, masking, hand washing, and hygiene and deep cleaning, social distancing and spacing. So the risk of transmission is very low in the office now. Uh, extremely low. So people should go out to their eye doctors and get their eye exams and their routine examinations to make sure that they're not losing vision and to keep on top of their eyes. And now we have the vaccine that's out. So I do encourage everyone in the community to get the vaccine. I got my shot, my first one. I'm due for my second one tomorrow. And so I do encourage people to, you know, make arrangements to get that because blacks are being affected at two to four times higher rates than whites with COVID-19. But Whites are getting vaccinated at about two to four times higher than the rates of blacks. And we want to, you know, bridge that gap because we are at high risk because we tend to be on the first line and front lines as essential workers. And also we have a higher rate of comorbidities. So that contributes to a higher death rate. We should get our eyes checked twice a year? Once a year. Once a year? Yeah, once a year is fine. And when you get closer to age 40... Uh, one, you may start to need reading glasses or computer glasses because presbyopia develops where the lens doesn't focus as well. Two, you want to get your eye pressure checked to make sure eye pressure is okay, which the mean normal is about 15. Uh, you want to get your visual acuity checked to see if you need any glasses. Um, get your optic nerve checked, the retina checked to make sure you have no retinopathy. We have a high rate of obesity in the community and hypertension, and sometimes that can lead to retinopathy, hypertensive retinopathy, diabetic retinopathy that can lead to loss of vision. You want to get checked for that. Uh, the best medicine is healthy food, lots of salads, lots of vegetables, baked chicken, baked fish that will keep you healthy. Try to stay away from too much rice, too much bread. Try to exercise 30 to 60 minutes a day, walking running to stay healthy, to avoid diabetes, avoid obesity, avoid high blood pressure. Those will all protect your eyes as well. 
And but getting your eyes checked once a year. Now, if they pick something up like glaucoma or cataracts or diabetic retinopathy or something like that, then you may need to see an eye doctor more often, like every six months or four months or three months, depending on what's going on. Got it. Now, if you had a magic wand, what would you fix about eye care health in the United States? Would it be insurance that you'd fix? You already talked about that we would equitably distribute eye doctors and eye care practices much more. What like What's the fix? What should we do better as a country that we haven't done well? I got a, a list of things. Um, first, we have to have a universal health care system so everybody has access to health care. Right now, we don't have a universal health care system. We have many people that are uninsured and don't get access to health care, so we have to have a universal health care system. Two, we have to eliminate structural race-based plantation capitalism and structural poverty. And that affects many different things, like in housing, education, criminal justice, health care, uh, workforce. This leads to adverse outcomes. And we also have to address the wealth gap. Like I mentioned before, the average net worth of a white family is about 171000 compared to 17000 a black family. And that gap is a big reason for lack of access to health care and affordability of health care. Some of the steps we can do to take that, they're working on this now, is increasing the minimum wage to about $15 an hour. That helps to provide a living income and stipend to poor people. Um, for those people that are unemployed, Perhaps they can get a minimum type of stipend of $7 an hour so they can have access to food, okay, to reduce malnutrition and poor health outcomes from that. Right now, as you can see politically, one of the biggest issues in America is domestic white terrorism also. So this domestic white terrorism causes a lot of stress to all Americans. We've been experiencing domestic white terrorism for decades, but now that the domestic white terrorists are going to the Capitol, it's making the news every day. So that causes a lot of stress. It can lead to blood pressure, diabetes, retinopathy, strokes in the eye, and things of that nature. The government spends billions of dollars on research. All these medical schools and medical institutions and educational institutions get billions of dollars on research, okay? But that's not tied to diversity, okay? That's not tied to the amount of black researchers that are there or black people getting mentored to become future researchers. And we have to relook at that and tie that to diversity because we have 40 million black Americans here who are also taxpayers that pay into this and they don't receive their fair share of research funding, research training, and uh, research development. And the same thing with the medical corporations. All the medical corporations, the corporations on Wall Street making billions of dollars on drugs, medical devices, things that Americans use all the time but there's a complete lack of diversity at the executive level and each of the levels coming down. And we have to make sure that corporate America takes a look at themselves and their leadership okay, to make sure they're diverse and reflect the fabric of America. We have to work to increase the number of black and Afro-Latino physicians. Right now we make up about 13% of the population, but we only make up about 4% of physicians. In my specialty of ophthalmology, we only make up about 1% of ophthalmologists as well. These are some of the things that I think we need to do to help bridge the gap overall if I had a magic wand. And are there any other eye-related things that we should talk about that we don't, that like we're not even considering? Is it like, I don't know, I'm sure I, have, I know nothing about eye care besides my own. I used to wear contacts for a long time and glasses. I got LASIK a couple of years ago. I don't know. What else should we be talking about that, that I don't know, that we don't know? Well, right now we're in a COVID-19 environment, so many people are at home on their computers. Those people that are spending a lot of time on the computers, you want to make sure you get an eye exam so you have the appropriate spectacle correction that you can see okay and see the computer clearly. 
when you are seeing it, the computer, you want to do the 20-20-20 rule. After you look at the computer for 20 minutes, take a 20-second break and look at something 20 feet away to give your eyes a rest to reduce the strain on your eye. That's one. Two, at night, you don't want to spend too much time on a computer or phone because the light from the computer or your phone can disturb your sleep cycle and the melatonin sleep cycle in your body and the hormonal uh, sleep in your body that occurs. Because, you know, your body, when it's dark in the room, your body wants to go to sleep and shut down. But when you're looking at your computer, it starts to think it's daytime and that can change the rhythm, the dial rhythm of the night. Most of the diseases take place, usually occur along the elderly range, from cataracts, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, uh, in that respect. So getting an eye exam is very important to check for those things, macular degeneration also in the elderly. So the most important thing is, despite the fact that it's COVID-19, uh, you know, take the proper precautions, keep your appointments with the doctor, wear your mask, do social distancing. Uh, most medical offices are COVID-19 safe. And then if you can't get out, you could do telehealth as well. Most doctors do telehealth appointments over the phone and or by computer. So you can do that as well to take care of yourself. Those are some other tips and pros for you. Where can people go to stay in touch with you and stay up to date with what you're doing? On my website, www.advanceicareny.com. I have some uh, materials. You can get in touch with me. I have uh, educational videos. Also, uh, on my YouTube page, Daniel Roche, MD, I have educational videos on uh, uh, glaucoma and surgery as well. Our office number in New York is uh, 718-217-0424. We do do telehealth consults also. And Manhattan office, 212-663-0473. And I do encourage people to make sure to take care of their eye health and their systemic body health as well. Well, we consider your friend of the pod and can't wait to uh, have you back. So thanks so much. Hey, d thank you very much for having me. And I uh, just want to say I appreciate all the work that you do with the protests and uh, educating people and on education as well. So, you know, keep up the good work that you're doing. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Cricket Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elsey. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.